0: The season of Advent, I don't know if you guys grew up um, observing the liturgical calendar, but Advent marks the beginning of the new year within the church. And it's a four-week cycle that takes us up to Christmas, and it's a time of waiting. It's a time of anticipation, specifically celebrating the coming of Jesus. And when we think about that in the Christmas season, we think about celebrating Jesus as a baby and His entrance into the world, but Advent kind of has a two-pronged effect where it's not just celebrating the coming of Jesus as, as a baby, taking on flesh, becoming one of us, but it's also for us as Christians now on the other side of Christmas and on the other side of Easter, waiting with anticipation for the second coming of Jesus. This time of Advent does not really give us a lot of moments to sit and pause. And reflect Again, I don't know if you guys share the same schedule that I have, but it seems as though from Thanksgiving up to Christmas, it's run, 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 go, 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 get, get, get. Especially within our American culture, there's so many temptations for us to be uh, enticed by the consumerism that dominates the Christmas season. But here we are entering into this four-week season of Advent where we will be celebrating and waiting with great expectation upon not only uh, the birth of Jesus, but the second coming of Jesus as well. We've been talking over the last 12 weeks, um, getting up to this point in a series called We Believe, where we were looking at the core tenets of the Christian faith. Uh, we were looking at these core tenets in order to bring about some unity amongst believers, to bring about some unity for us as a church, but also to break down some walls that might divide us um, with other communities of faith and seeing the core tenets of the Christian faith. And I think that this is actually an interesting segue into this season of Advent as we think about the coming of Jesus and His birth and the second coming of Jesus. We've looked specifically over the last few weeks at these passages within the Nicene Creed, which was a fourth century document outlining these core tenets of the faith. In particular, it talks about Jesus in this way. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. In this point in time, as this statement was being penned, there was an ongoing conversation within the Capital C Church as to how to define and identify who Jesus was, what he has done on our behalf, and how to best worship him in particular, there was teachings outside of the walls of the capital C church that was trying to infiltrate and uh, in a sense have just bad teaching about who Jesus was. So some of this language here we see that's very uh, philosophical or theological in nature, this, this bent on Jesus as begotten and not made. In its point in time, um, others were trying to diminish Jesus's divinity by saying he was created. He's a little bit more than human, a little bit less than than God, he's something different and the authors of this creed were wanting to take that and uh, destroy that bit of bad teaching. For us and for our salvation, it says, he came down from heaven, he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. This in a sense is the Nicene Creed's uh, contribution to Christmas. You'll note, as it talks about Jesus becoming human, it skips over all of his life and goes right to the cross. It says, he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Even within the creed, there are these forward-looking promises, these claims that we believe as a church community that's not just celebrating what was in the past, but the things that will come in the future. Jesus will come again, and he will come with judgment. His kingdom will never end. The very last line of the creed that we have not done justice to, I think I may have said it at the very end of uh, the week on baptism, is another forward-looking note within the creed it says we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come and in a sense this is what advent is it is a looking back to celebrate what jesus has done on our behalf but it's also a looking ahead to the coming of jesus where he will set all things right and for us here we're in this space between where we're trying to figure out and identify where we fit into this matrix of stuff, where we have behind us the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And hopefully over the last 12 weeks of our study in this We Believe series, we have outlined the beauty and the importance of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus, as God who takes on flesh, lives a life where he can identify with us, and he has taken on the worst that anyone could bring upon a person. And through his death, he has put to death evil and sin. And we've seen that in his resurrection, he becomes the first fruits, as Paul would say. This image of what is to come for us, where he has initiated new creation, and we get to be a part of that right here and right now. And when we submit ourselves to Jesus and we claim to um, put our trust in him and follow him, we are transformed and we become A new creation. If that isn't something to sing joy to the world for, then I don't know quite what is, but for us, we find ourselves in the midst of this tension between what Jesus has done in the past and how we have accepted it, but we look forward to the day when Jesus will come to set everything to rights. And I've talked about this space between, and I've used some nerdy language like inaugurated eschatology. Raise your hand if you've heard me say that before. A couple of you and the rest of you are just lying to me if you've been here before. But inaugurated eschatology is this idea that Jesus has brought the end here for us. The things that are out there waiting, he has brought them to bear. This is why we talk about bringing heaven to earth through our actions and our words and our deeds. The things that we do here and now have an eternal significance, not just in the way that we can put crowns or jewels in our crown or what have you or build a bigger mansion. That's not the point of the text. We can build for the kingdom. The things that we do have eternal consequences and significance because of the ways that they are bringing heaven to earth now for some people that might be living in the midst of hell our call as christians is to bring this message of hope and redemption and reconciliation this this new creation that is available but even as we offer this new creation we know that we stand within the tension of the already and the not yet some more nerdy stuff We are already saved and sanctified and redeemed and reconciled through Jesus, but we are not yet fully receiving those blessings yet. We still die. We still get sick. We still go to funerals. We still have relationships that crumble. We still have bills to pay. We still have injustices that have been brought upon us. And while we claim all these things in Jesus' name, we claim that we are sons and daughters, and we claim that we are part of this beautiful family, we still go through a time of suffering and trial and difficulty. And perhaps for some of you, when we think about Advent and this time of waiting, you're waiting for your time of suffering and oppression to end. And you're living within this already and not yet where you have received these good gifts from Jesus but they're not yet quite brought to fruition because of where we are in this whole matrix of time. We see this tension in our lives. And for some of us, the space between the benefits of his life, death, and resurrection and his second coming, we find ourselves here in the middle and we find ourselves in the midst of difficult moments. Advent is a season of celebrating, but Advent is also a season of, of waiting and looking forward to something. And I'm going to keep using this phrase, looking forward to Jesus making everything right. It doesn't take much for us to turn on the news or look at our Facebook and see the things that are wrong in the world, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But there's things that are happening now where for some of us within the church, we think about the significance of Jesus' death and his resurrection, but we look outside of the walls and we see what seems to be chaos. And we say, come Lord Jesus, because we know, or if we don't know, we know now that when he comes, things will be made. Right. So we are celebrating Christmas in the very traditional sense of looking back to beautiful little baby Jesus and and all of the mystery that that entails. God becomes a baby. And we know that babies are so dependent upon their parents, and babies, oh gosh, they're a lot of work. And it makes me wonder as a dad how much work Jesus was in the middle of the night when you're just really tired and you just want Jesus to go back to sleep, you know? (laughs) But we're also waiting for something. We're waiting for the end, perhaps. This is our text for tonight, and I've got to... um, let you in on this. Throughout the Advent season, we're going to be using what's called the lectionary. The lectionary is a collection of passages that are grouped together. There is a gospel reading, a New Testament reading, an Old Testament reading, and a psalm reading. They're called lections, the four lections in each lectionary weekly cycle. Okay, sounds super nerdy, but just stick with me. This is neat because churches beyond just us are talking about these passages all throughout the country and even all throughout the world where we're looking and studying at these same passages. Now, you'd think that week one of Advent, super little Christmas, we've got our Christmas songs going on, as my mom has taught me that once you go past Thanksgiving, you better sing Christmas carols, okay? Okay. Yes, I've, I've tried to observe that, but here, you would think that we would get something that's Christmassy in focus, um, but hold on to all that stuff that I was talking about waiting and thinking about the second coming of Jesus, and this passage is not one that you would have a, a little kid Christmas play about, although kind of, I think that'd be pretty awesome. Okay, let me read it to you. Matthew 24, this is in part of what's called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives, and this is a very apocalyptic text, okay? Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The word of God for the people of God. And Merry Christmas. It's a strange text here, specifically about the end of the world almost. And it begins this passage by saying, you do not know nor does Jesus, nor do the angels, but only God the Father knows when all of this will take place. And for some of you, perhaps, as you hear those words, you begin to think about a moment, maybe even six years ago in your life, and if you've been around a little bit longer, maybe even before that, in 1994, there was a book, I believe, in 1988 called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Was Coming Back in 1988. There was, there was these moments where Bible teachers were trying to predict the end of the world, and nearly six years ago, there was a guy named Harold Camping who made this whole um, campaign that was trying to identify the exact moment when Jesus would come back. And he identified that date as May 21st, 2011. And the people that followed camping had devoted all sorts of money and finances. They started putting billboards up all over the place and just trying to get the word out that Jesus was coming back at this specific moment in history. And here we sit in 2016, and Jesus did not come back, but people have made it their job to try to figure out the whens and the wheres and the whys by decoding the Bible to try to figure out what's going on and what will happen. People start to read the Bible with an open newspaper and starting to see the different political trajectories and the different things that are going on in the world, again, with the specific purpose of trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back to put the world to rights. And I don't want to pick on Harold Camping necessarily. I actually enjoyed listening to his show a lot of times on the way back from Bible college because uh, people would call in. He had a show called Open Form, and they'd call in with Bible questions, and you could hear him rustling around with his uh, King James Version of the Bible and the pages going, and then he would come up with an answer. And it wasn't an answer that I necessarily agreed with most of the time, but it was still interesting and exciting. So here we have people that were trying to identify what's going on in this passage to figure out when Jesus was coming back, but in so doing, they've completely misunderstood the import of this passage. If I could break it down for us just in a couple of words or a couple of phrases, it would be this straight from the book of Matthew. Keep watch keep watch and be ready. And beyond that, using some of Paul's language, live and act in a manner worthy of your calling. Now, I know of communities, especially within America, and America's a crazy place. Can I get an amen? Amen. Okay, so there are some faith communities where their idea of keeping watch and being ready entailed starting communities where they would move out from places and live in kind of shacks waiting for Jesus to, to come back. And they wouldn't even bother creating safe shacks to live in because they thought that the return of Jesus was, was imminent. You have to appreciate their passion, but at the same time, it seems to be a, a misreading of the Bible because it says very clearly that we can't know the time. We can't know when this is going to happen Instead, what we should be busying ourselves with is keeping watch, being ready, and living and acting in a manner worthy of your calling. And I put living and acting because I don't think that our job is just to remove ourselves from the world, to keep watch as one who's huddled within their house, looking outside of the window, waiting for any sign. But our job is to go out and do the work, to busy ourselves with the work of Jesus in our communities. And what that work looks like might be a little bit different than what we've thought about before. Perhaps it's mentoring kids at epoch. Perhaps it's investing in the lives of your neighbors. Perhaps it's becoming someone who demonstrates the gospel while also speaking about the gospel and the good news of Jesus. So we are called to be living and acting in a manner worthy of our calling. Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 13. This is another lectionary reading. It says, and do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. There's again a very apocalyptic sort of tone here that Paul is taking on where something is going to happen imminently, where Jesus is coming back and we should be understanding the present time that we are in and living like we were in that time. He continues, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. As I was preparing this talk, I thought that this was a neat opportunity to let the text speak for itself. Sometimes I think the job of preaching is a bit overrated. I love doing it, but at the same time, some of these passages, I think that we could just read them and ask the Spirit to intercede for us. Now, having said that, I do have some comments. (laughs) But before we get there, verse 13, let us behave decently, he says, or appropriately, Um, As in the daytime, and Paul is using this daytime, nighttime sort of uh, juxtaposition here, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. As Christians, we are called to know what time it is. It's this time in between as we look back to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, understanding that he has, and I don't want to jargon this up, he has brought about new creation. He has opened up avenues for us to receive wholeness and life and healing and forgiveness. Can I get an amen? That's the good stuff. But here we're in this space between where that might not have taken full root, where we feel all of the benefits of that because our lives are difficult and we still look forward to the day. We should know what time it is where we have this monumental paradigm shifting moment in the past that can mean everything for us in the future and determines what we are keeping watch for and being ready for in the future knowing what time it is and living like it. Paul says this, and I just want you to hear the words, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. For the Christians in the room, for the people that have committed themselves to following Jesus, does this embody how it is that we live have we put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light? This is what Paul talks about a lot, putting off the old man and putting on the new man. Does that describe us? Or are we still caught in that in the lust of the deeds of darkness? of darkness. He goes on, let us behave decently, and I think that kind of undersells what's going on here. Let us behave appropriately, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. One New Testament scholar says, so we wait for Christ's coming by becoming the Christ people, putting off the deeds that mark the world not subjected to Christ's reign of peace and justice. We wait for Christ's coming by becoming that future ahead of his arrival so that when he arrives, he will, behold, he will behold his own as though looking in a mirror. We are caught in this tension here, understanding what Jesus has done for us and looking ahead to what will happen in the future. And we are to be living as the ones who know where it is that we're going. And I'm not talking about as a disembodied spirit that floats off to heaven. I'm talking about as one who is engaged in the work of restoring this place. Fighting for the relationships that are broken, fighting against injustice, becoming an advocate of peace and hope and life, allowing people to feel and receive forgiveness, maybe even for the first time, because every voice that they've had in their mind has been you can't, you won't, you shouldn't, you aren't. But the message, the good news of Jesus is you are. That is who we should be living as here and now. But are we too busy caught up in the deeds of darkness? Are we too busy not putting on the armor of light? Have we just succumbed to the ease of living in the midst of our own darkness and debauchery? For us, and this, I think this is very pointed for the people of TRP and maybe just for me, the guy with the microphone most of the time, The things that we talk about here are big sweeping things like injustice, We talk about the wrongs in the world, whether they be racially motivated or whether they be socioeconomically motivated or whether they be just people being displaced or put down or oppressed. We talk about these big sweeping things of injustice and we have very lofty language about becoming agents of change and agents of restoration and agents of hope and agents of fill in the blank with anything that sounds good. What I think that we've forgotten sometimes to consider is that the only way that we can do that is if we also become transformed as individuals striving to become holy as God is holy. I think at times we undersell that in in light of these big, sweeping, lofty, very trendy and sexy sort of issues in the world. When you flip through the pages of of relevant magazine, perhaps, you see a lot of stuff about justice, but do we see a lot of stuff about individual personal holiness? And what Paul is calling us to here is being one who is not engaged in carousing and drunkenness, to be one who is not engaged in sexual immorality and debauchery, to be one who is not engaged in dissension and jealousy, and if you're a red-blooded American person, I imagine that one of those categories might be part of your, your life at the moment. For most of my um, adult and even adolescent life, just to put some, some skin on this for you, I have found my identity in my achievements I have found my self-worth in the things that I could accomplish, whether they be degrees or whether they be publications or whether they be um, sports, whatever. Like, I found that for me. And when I hear Paul saying, we should be ones who do not live in dissension and jealousy, that second term there, jealousy, it sticks me. Because as an achievement-driven person, when I see the success of other people, I begin to diminish who I am as a person. Well, they did this, and they're a lot better than me, and I must need to try to do something else so I can earn my self-worth back. And I don't wanna turn this into a counseling session here, but I do want you to hear that these things that Paul is bringing out, they're very real issues. And they're very real issues for us at different times in our lives, but they're things that we don't always talk about. Sexual immorality is not something that we necessarily, as a community, have spent much time talking about. But for Paul, these are the things that are important for us to become those who say no to darkness and yes to putting on the armor of light. The people who are waiting in anticipation for the second coming of Jesus, not just keeping watch huddled in our rooms, looking out the window through a closed curtain, but one who is out there on the forefront inviting people in and living a life that demonstrates the calling. I hope that wherever we land and wherever we sit in these, that we can feel that call to personal individual holiness in the midst of our communal efforts to fight against injustice together. So here we have sin and injustice. And I also want to throw up here sin and Christmas. Because this is an Advent series, you know. And I think it's important for us to talk about copious amounts of presents and copious amounts of food and all of the things that we want. All of the things that we have tricked ourselves into thinking that we need to pacify the desires that we have in our own minds and hearts for affirmation and self-worth. It was surprising to me that, you know, now as a dad of two, just trying to capture these moments. Yes, I watched This Is Us, and yes, there was a moment towards the end when that guy's dad was talking about just capturing these moments. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Two of you? Okay. So, no shame, Kevin. It's okay. It's a great show. Like for us, I think that's at least part of it, where we're able to slow down, where we're able to engage people, where we're able to put our phones away and look people in the eye and ask them how they're doing and not be rushing off to something else to to fill our own need. I've already identified that when I sit on the couch and it's just me and Kate, the easy thing for me to do is just to flip open that phone. It's almost become like a, a reflex, whereas I need to fill the time with something that can make me feel a certain way. And I think that when we start to see these things, and especially around the holidays, we begin to identify, yes, our own personal shortcomings and the ways that this season can heighten those, but I think that it can also, at least if we can step outside of ourselves, begin to see those big sweeping injustices in the world and become part of rectifying the problem where we can actually engage with people in a way that we might not have done a year ago, two years ago, 10 years ago. So here in week one of Advent, this is the week of hope where we are supposed to be thinking about what is to come, and I just want to throw out a couple of things for us to be considering. We should be celebrating God's past faithfulness throughout the Bible, but also in our own lives where we see how God has brought us to this point. We celebrate those things and we wait with anticipation for what is to come and in the midst of that, we continue to build for the kingdom. I hope that some of that language is sinking in because what I believe happens through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is that he allows us to partner with him in this project of restoration where the things that we do and the people that we communicate with and the way that we help others actually has an eternal significance. Not for our own gain, but for the gain of Christ's kingdom in the world. And in in the American context, those things are very difficult to find at this time of year because it's so much about us. My hope this evening, though, is that we begin to look past what is thrust upon us and see the needs around us, the opportunities that we have around us to demonstrate what it looks like to wait with anticipation to celebrate God's past faithfulness and to build for the kingdom. Perhaps for some of us that starts at home where we rebuild some of the relationships that are starting to break and crumble. Perhaps for some of us that means we have those difficult conversations across the table. Perhaps for some of us that means that we fight for reconciliation and hope together. In this time, I hope that we can trust the Spirit to guide us and ask for the courage to go wherever the Spirit leads us and to engage in those difficult but perhaps beautiful moments of building for the kingdom together.